Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3? We're going to pick up in verse 14. I'll remind you, we are starting a series for the Christmas holidays called The Incarnation and the Mission of God. Or we could just shorten that and say, why was Christ, why did Christ come? Why did Christ come? Now, as you're turning, I want to ask a very simple question. How would you summarize the Bible? In one sentence, how would you summarize the Bible? If someone come up to you and they said, why is Christ so important for Christmas? How would you say it in one sentence? That was asked once to a man, and he gave the best answer I think I've ever heard. He said... Kill the snake, get the girl. Kill the snake, get the girl. But do you notice a movement in that sentence? The salvation of the girl, which would be the church, comes through the judgment on the snake. That our blessing comes through his cursing. How does a statement like that make us feel? What does it make us think of? Well, let's pick it up in our sermon in a sentence. Satan's curse is the Christian's blessing. Satan's curse is the Christian's blessing. Now, let's pray and we'll read our passage. Heavenly Father, this is a word first spoken to Adam. And you spoke to Abraham to Moses, and to David. And now you speak to us with a greater clarity than all all of those who've come before us. And with that clarity, you expect more out of us. Father, this is a daunting task and a great responsibility. We cannot arise to this occasion on our own. So I ask that you would pour forth your spirit, that your word may come to us in power, that it may reside deep in our hearts, that it may work throughout our life. Help us, Father, to read and understand the words you have given us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, we're going to read 14 and 15. Chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between, her offspring, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And thus ends the reading of God's word this morning. Each of us here know the story of the fall. God said don't eat. Satan tempted Eve. Eve ate. Adam ate. And the rest of mankind who is descended from Adam and Eve has been born into sin. That we sinned in him and fell with him in his first 
transgression. Or we could summarize it by saying, Satan tempted, Adam sinned, and we have been willing slaves to sin and Satan ever since. Now most sermons on this passage passage speak of Adam and Eve. But the real question I have this morning is not to look at Adam and Eve, but to look at Satan. What led Satan to such cosmic tyranny? What would provoke Satan to do such an act? And on one hand, we look at it and we say, well, Satan's pride reared his ugly head against God. We see this in places like Ezekiel, where it describes Satan as wise, as beautiful, as chief among the angels. And yet, Satan wanted to exalt himself above God, above him who all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. He wanted to exalt himself above God Almighty. But there is more than simply pride at work here. There's also envy. For Satan looks at man made from the dust. And yet Psalm 8 tells us that man was made lower than the angels, but crowned with glory and honor and a sense of communion with God the angels would never know. He's envious. Pride may be at the bottom of all mistakes, but when pride is mixed with envy, it turns into malice. Malice directed toward man. This malice would bring men into bondage, but this malice would also bring a malediction, a curse upon Satan for the salvation of mankind. So the question before us is simple. Who and how will this curse be afflicted? Who will inflict it and how will it be done? Where we're dealing with pride and envy. Pride and envy. And when we read the Bible, God has this thing called retributive justice. It's where God makes the time fit the crime. God says in Obadiah 15, As you have done, so it shall be done to you. How is God going to exact justice against the pride and envy of Satan? Well, to quell the pride of Satan, the who must be stronger than Satan. The who must be stronger than Satan. Our translation says bruise his head. But the word in Hebrew actually translates better as crush. It takes a lot of strength to crush, to disarm, to annihilate someone. You need somebody with a lot of power. This is something I know from personal experience. I got in a fight once. Just once. And it was with my best friend who was a good 80 pounds heavier than me. And he was cruising for a bruising, so I punched him right in the face. 
And he thought a mosquito bit him. And so I did the only reasonable thing. I fled from my enemy. I was not powerful enough. Now, which one of us can bruise the head of Satan? Which of us can crush him? The mighty angel, the ancient serpent. Adam was in his pristine state. He was at his peak potential. And he fell without a shot. The angels, when Satan stormed heaven, he took a third of the angels with him. We read in the book of Jude that Michael the archangel would not pronounce judgment against Satan. We are no match. The angels are no match. The only one powerful enough to quell the pride of Satan is God himself. And isn't it fitting that the one from whom Satan tried to exalt himself over is the one who comes down to kill the snake and get the girl. The one who executes the curse. The coming of God deals with the pride of Satan. But we have to also think of Satan's envy. How would God eradicate his envy? Well, God would come down as the seed of the woman. He would come down as the seed of the woman. We call this the incarnation. It's what we celebrate every Christmas. Herman Witsius writes, The proudest of spirits should be vanquished not by a man, but by a woman. By the very woman whom he had subdued, seeing that salvation is by the woman who was weaker by nature and first overcome, it is clearer than noonday that God's grace is all and all. We have to laugh, for there's humor, there's irony in the grace of God. There is a redemptive reversal. The seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would come from a place of weakness to defeat Satan. The very vessel of which Satan's envy burned would be the very vessel that cast him into a lake of fire. The malice of Satan sought his own blessing in our curse, but through the seed of the woman, Satan would be cursed for our blessing. And because of him, we have a greater participation in the grace of God by the Son of God. For he has united himself with us for the sole purpose of Satan's defeat. In Satan's downfall, we have been lifted up. The pride and envy of Satan has been defeated in the incarnation, in the God-man, and the Son of God who took on the seed of the woman. But this only answers half the question. We know the who does it. It's Jesus. That's why we celebrate Christmas. But the kicker is how he does it. How does he put Satan to rest? How does he end Satan's malice? How does he exact the curse? As we read 
throughout the Old Testament, what we have found most often is that God defeats power, not with more power. God doesn't fight fire with fire. God defeats power with weakness. Let's think of every young boy's favorite book of the Bible. Let's think of the book of Judges. We read through the book of Judges. What do we find? Who could forget the downfall of Sisera? When Sisera tried to take over Israel with iron chariots and horses, he did not die on the field of battle. He did not die in a place of honor. God did not fight fire with fire. How was Sisera defeated? A woman took a tent peg and crushed his head. The enemy of God's people had his head crushed by a woman. Who could forget Abimelech, who by cunning and tyranny sought to take power and prestige. And as he goes into this town and he seeks to set the tower on fire from where all the town is huddled up for safety, how is he defeated? How is this tyrant destroyed? A woman drops her millstone from the top of the tower. A woman drops a symbol of her weakness and her poverty and it crushes his head. The enemy of God's people, his head is crushed. And who could forget the epitome of this? Who could forget Christmas morning? The sun did not appear in a resplendent glory, setting the world on fire by his magnificent glory. He did not turn the dominion of darkness to stubble with his blazing fury. No, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Born into weakness, born into poverty, born into misery. Born to restore the honor of woman, born to bring blessing to man. The manger was but the storming of Normandy. It was the opening shot of a cosmic battle. Who could forget Christ's temptation in the wilderness? How did Christ defeat Satan? Was it by turning stones into bread? Was it by taking the kingdom by force? No. It was by hunger. It was by humility. It was by weakness he defeated Satan in the wilderness. And after that defeat, he marched through the land and systematically cast out demons from every single corner. He came in weakness and he won. But this is not the end, is it? Have we forgotten the cross of Calvary? The place where power was cloaked in weakness and darkness and death? To defeat Satan? To deliver men from his defilement? Christ will be defiled. To save from sin and shame as we read this morning... He would become sin. He would endure our shame. Where Satan promised life leading to our death, nails held the dying arms Christ, the dying arms of Christ wide open that sinners 
could come and find life. He defeated Satan, not with a display of power, but in weakness. For as Paul says, the weakness of God is stronger than the power of men, the foolishness of God wiser than the wisdom of men. Don't we see this in the resurrection and the ascension? That when Christ endured all that Satan could throw at him, Christ gave us all we could ever ask for. Satan's pride was crushed by Christ's humility, his envy by Christ's generosity, his power by the weakness of the God-man. Now Satan is risen, I mean Christ is risen, Satan is disarmed, captivity is captive, Christ is victorious, Christians are free. We are free. Satan is cursed. We are blessed. We have salvation through judgment. Blessing through cursing. Now how does this curse that Christ has inflicted on Satan, how does it become a blessing for us? Well, we see it in our very passage, don't we? Notice what God says in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity. The first blessing we have is God puts enmity between Satan's offspring and the offspring of promise. When Adam and Eve took the fruit... They swallowed down sin. They clicked the I agree on Satan's terms and conditions. You know that 15 pages you don't read when you download an app? Adam and Eve didn't read it either. They just hit I accept. They entered into a covenant with Satan. If I can use the southern expression, they became drinking buddies with Satan. They got into trouble together with Satan. They had a friendship, a peace with Satan, which equaled enmity against God. How would this relationship be severed? God tells us he puts enmity between us and him. Where Satan entered into a covenant with us, Christ enters into a covenant of grace with us. It's conveyed in the Bible in so many ways. We've been transferred from a dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We have been born again to a living hope. We've been given a new heart. Do you see the trend? Nowhere does it say, I will produce enmity. Zach will not produce enmity. MJ will not transfer himself to another kingdom. Monty will not give himself a new heart. Miss Karen will not cause herself to be born again. She won't birth herself. Who's doing the action? God's doing the action. We call that regeneration. It is a blessing. It is a gift. Don't we see it in Cain and Abel? What separated the two? Was one just a bad seed and the other a good seed? Did one believe in God and the other didn't? No. 
They both believed in God. The problem was one had enmity against God. The other had enmity against Satan. God had put enmity in the heart of Abel. That he would have enmity against Satan and a friendship with God. We see it in the very sacrifice they offered. That Cain comes begrudgingly. Abel comes by faith. Abel cast himself upon the mercy of God, but John says Cain was of the evil one. So I ask you, who are we at peace with? Who are we friends with? Is it God or Satan? Do we feel enmity toward the devil and his works? Or do we simply plead neutrality? Will it bygones be bygones? God did not put in us neutrality. God put in us enmity. I will put enmity between the two. Do we have that same enmity against Satan and his works? That is the first blessing. The second blessing is God fosters that enmity. God fosters that enmity. This is what we call sanctification. Where we hate sin more and we love righteousness more. Sanctification is a blessing. It is a gift. As one becomes friends with God, our hatred for the devil grows. If you've ever read Psalm 193, David spends the first four stanzas describing how amazing God is. And then out of the blue, he says, Now God, I wish you would slay the wicked. Why? Why is that in there? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? David loves God so much that David hates everything opposed to God. That's how our relationships work. Love of God fosters enmity to sin and Satan. When we read in John 17, Jesus prays for us that we would be kept from the evil one. Well, how are we to be kept? He prays, sanctify them, set them apart by your truth, for your word is truth. Jesus wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. He wants us to be on the offensive, but defended by Satan. So what does Jesus pray for? He prays for our sanctification, for our holiness, for a growing and fostering enmity against sin and Satan. This is why Jesus consecrates himself. This is why Jesus is obedience. This is why Jesus has spotless purity. That we may be devoted to God, not to Satan. That we may be slaves of righteousness, not slaves of sin. Is this enmity being fostered in our life? It's the day, it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So this might be too soon. But I had a friend once who was on a diet. And I asked him, how's that working out? And he went, 
Not too well. I have the same question today. It's the end of the year. How's our gluts, that glut of sin, what's it look like? Is our enmity toward that sin growing? So that sin is being pushed out of our lives? Or is it growing cold? Is it not working? Are we making excuses for following Christ for 8 million reasons? Are we more dedicated to watching our TV shows, our media, hanging out with particular friends than fostering an enmity toward God? Has our friendship with God grown in the course of the year? If it hasn't, if it has, I ask you, what are two small steps we can make today to foster an enmity toward Satan and a deeper friendship with God. What are two small steps we can take? Because I end with this. God has put enmity. God will foster enmity. God will end enmity. The day will come when the church is made whole, when Satan is crushed under our feet, when a new heaven and a new earth come and the ancient serpent will be cast into a lake of fire and sulfur. When we will love God, not with battling emotions and desires in our heart, but as Robert Murray McShane said, we will love him with an unsinning heart. That when Satan's curse has reached its climax, so will our blessing. You know what we call that? Glorification. It is a blessing. It is a gift. It is a gift promised to us. It was promised in Genesis 3.15. It was secured in the incarnation. And it is being fulfilled in us day by day. Christmas stands to us as a monument of hope and eager expectation that God will finish what He has promised in His Word. He will foster that enmity. He will bring it to an end. Let us cling to that hope, for our hope is as secure as Satan's curse and our blessings. Now, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how low are our desires for you and how weak we are to overcome them. Father, I pray that by your Spirit and the means of grace you have given to us through prayer, through worship, through your Word, through the fellowship of the saints, through all the means of grace you have given us, would you inflame for us a greater desire for Jesus Christ and a greater hatred of sin? Father, I pray that we as a church and a people would be known for a love to Christ and a hatred of sin. Would you continue to sanctify us that that blessing that we expect in heaven, we may taste more and more of right now. Father, we ask your help because you have promised it. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ.
Amen.